Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Ison, and I invite you to join me in these candid kitchen table conversations, where together we celebrate these leaders' ingenuity, are inspired by their wisdom and wit, and learn how collectively we can all strive to do and be better. This is Dreaming in Color. Bridget Antoinette Evans is an award-winning artist, philanthropy executive, and the thought leader in the narrative change field, pioneering the use of pop culture strategies and narrative systems methodology to advance social justice. Since 2017, Bridget has served as CEO of the Pop Culture Collaborative, a philanthropic resource and funder learning community working to transform the narrative landscape around people of color, immigrants, refugees, Muslims, and indigenous peoples in America, especially those who are women, queer, trans, and disabled. She has dedicated her career to the relentless investigation of the potential of artists and stories to drive change in society. Through Fuel, We Power Change, the creative and strategic consultancy she founded in 2008, Bridget has designed and tested long-term culture change strategies in partnership with many of the nation's leading movement organizations, including the Save Darfur Coalition, Girls Are Not For Sale Campaign, National Domestic Workers Alliance, Caring Across Generation, ACLU, and the Make It Work Campaign. I always enjoy talking with Bridget and so hope you enjoy her brilliance as much as I do. Bridget, it's great to kick off the conversation. I have been waiting for this conversation all week, and I throw it to you to give us an invocation. The invocation that I wanted to sort of bring into the room was actually an idea Mm. that I was first introduced to by my imaginary mentor, Octavia Butler. And I remember reading uh, at some point an essay that she wrote called Positive Obsession, and she describes that Any obsession can be a positive obsession if it is actually sort of guiding you towards a level of really active and passionate focus on what you love. And the idea was really helpful to me, to my younger self, because I think I grew up feeling like, you know, you feel like you're a little odd, a little off when you really do kind of enter into your work and into your play with the kind of intensity and focus that may be unusual mm-hmm. for children <laughs> and teenagers. And so this sort of reflection back from this incredibly brilliant, powerful person that it was okay. And in fact, it could be a real kind of source of abundance mm. to be as focused and as passionate and curious as I was. Um, you know, in my case about art and theater and story and character and justice, you know, all that stuff kind of that was like swirling in my head as I was growing up and coming of age, that that could be my superpower. Yes was just kind of a transformative moment for me. And so what I want to bring into the space today is the sort of celebration and embrace of obsession as a thing that makes us more powerful and even more creative and is quite liberating when we just embrace it wholly. I love that. It's beautiful. And I think it's also just a shout out to all of us Very intense kids. Uh, I was joking with someone just last week that now we have this concept of being on the spectrum. And back in my day, that was called gifted and talented. That was literally, that's when we were pulled out of the room. There was something very special about us. And I think it was that intensity, that intense curiosity. That's right. And that intense curiosity is still something to live by. So Octavia Butler definitely has some invocations for all of us to live by because she was talking to all of us. She was all of our personal mentors. We're so lucky to have her. I want to kick off our conversation from a question perspective. You have a fascinating family story, but I know that so much of your legacy, you know, is rooted 
and your family's rooting, if you will, in the civil rights movement and fights for change in Georgia, really advocating at a time when justice meant putting your safety or even yourself and your life on the line. I mean, clearly, we're all carrying those torches, those legacies uh, from our families as both an honor, right? With that as kind of a, a basis for the question, just ask you, why have you chosen to pursue social justice through the lens of influencing pop culture and public narratives? It is inspired by the legacy of my family, particularly my mother's family in Savannah had quite an influence on my career trajectory. So my mom grew up in Savannah, Georgia in the 40s, 50s, early 60s, one of 13 children and a single mother. And in this large, old house that I remember very, very clearly And many young Black people at that time really relied on learning how change happens, how you build power, and then getting out on the streets and and doing it for themselves. So, you know, my uncle, Benjamin Van Clark, you know, he was older than my mom, and, and he was ultimately a field director in the civil rights movement in Savannah specifically. And my mother was this kind of like the younger sister who really looked up to her brother and wanted to be engaged and wanted to be involved and learn beside him. So she became very much involved in the movement organizing that was happening at that time. And what my mom kind of carried forward out of that kind of deep understanding of activism and organizing in the Jim Crow era was that you take the steps that you can take in your leadership and organizing, and then you set the stage for, you know, your children, other mm. young people to take to take over and move things forward. So what she did for my sister and I was to say, uh, look, where we have gotten to is a place where you have some choice. You can dream about a future for yourself, and you have some more choice Mm -hmm. about how you get there. You can imagine more expansively about how you will learn and where you will learn and who you will learn with. You have a wider array of career opportunities that you can pursue, right? So she said, so that's where we've gotten you to, but it's really up to you to figure out how whatever it is that you're doing, whatever career you choose, you are also carrying that torch forward. You are building on the legacy of our family. And for me, I really wanted to make art. I was incredibly shy as a child. Um, That is also something that resonated with me the more I learned about Octavia Butler's story is that it feels really terrible to be a young Mm. person who is, uh, who has a voice and has thoughts, but is terrified to share them. And I lived for a good part of my early childhood. I would call myself Mm. kind of very near to being mute in public, a level of social anxiety that really prevented me from from opening my mouth and saying what I thought when I was in my younger years. Um, And then my mom and dad kind of pushed me (laughs) into the theater, right? You know, I was first in school plays and really encouraging me (laughs) to to explore that. And I found a level of freedom and and confidence inside of other characters. So I began to love talking to the world through these other people and other story worlds. Um, And so that was a lifeline for me. That was definitely theater saved me and brought Mm -hmm. my voice. kind of connected my body to my voice. And 
yet that question in the back of my mind from my mom of like, how are you actually carrying on the legacy of justice by acting in a play was always very present. And that question of like, what Mm. about making theater? What about telling stories is contributing to the fight for justice has really been, that's my positive obsession, right? That is the thing that, you know, when my mother, I was home for the holidays uh, a few years ago, and she's like, I found your, Mm. I found your assignments from school in high school. And I'm sitting in a chair and I'm flipping through these like high school book reports, you know, typed out on a computer or written out on like journal paper. And I discovered that I have been pretty obsessed with these questions since I was a child, since I was a teenager, writing about them in my essays, writing stories about like obsessively reading about artists, Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee and other artists who had figured out what that connection was between their art and, um, and the just world that, that they yearned for. And I've been, I've been in this. And so that was the obsessive question that has led me on so many in so many different directions as an artist, um, as somebody who began to advise and consult with movement leaders um, to help them understand what the relationship was between organizing and storytelling and pop culture and entertainment. I worked for a number of years advising uh, high-profile artists in entertainment who were kind of awakening to their power and their yearning to be engaged in justice work. Mm. Uh, So I've taken it from a lot of different angles, but where I landed was in the culture change field, the narrative and culture change field, which is this brilliant space where people um, across entertainment and art and justice movements and research and strategy are all in the same same work of trying to understand how narrative change can happen at scale. This is powerful. And we're going to spend some time, I would love to spend some time a little bit later in the call or our conversation talking through what is narrative change. <laughs> it sounds like a silly question, right? But it's talk about words that are thrown around. Uh, what is narrative work? But I do want to double down a little bit more on how you've used your background in theater and performance as a professional actor, if you will, and producer. Mm-hmm. How you use this aspect of your identity to drive cultural and societal change, like how you leverage this skill in a way that really drives the work and makes it personal and high impact. I think it's been about kind of like a, an inquiry that has evolved in stages throughout my mm. career. As an actor, I didn't realize it until I looked backwards, but I had a strong instinct and pull towards characters, Black women who I think a lot of people in the world might consider um, to be in distress or um, mm. survivors of trauma people who held and sometimes were felled by mental illness. And what the through line of of many of these characters were was deep and profound despair around injustice, right? Like that was the trigger for them that launched them into crisis and sometimes moved them through crisis and sometimes not. What I was aware of as I was building characters was that actors, artists have choices. You have a million different ways that you can choose to interpret a moment in a script. 
And how you interpret it really determines how you end up in dialogue with an audience. So for instance, one of the first roles that I really, really dug into um, when I moved into New York was the lady in red in For Colored mm. Girls. This is a character who, you know, depending on how you interpret it, it's a character that really evolves from a, a young woman who experiences an unspeakable trauma when her children are murdered by her partner and evolves into a woman who knows how to survive in the world because she's figured out how to keep everybody out of the places in her where her trauma is actually thriving, like without healing. Hmm. And in thinking about that particular character, I remember very specifically when I realized that there was this strong connection between Crystal, this young woman who has this memory that she's, I imagined, never spoken out loud before, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. reaches a kind of that sort of like moment in the pitch of night as an older person where you suddenly cannot move forward without looking back at that moment of trauma. So at the mm. start of the play in this particular production, you find this woman sitting beside a uh, a tub, a bathtub in the middle of the stage with a slip on and uh, her hair in a in a state and you could imagine that this woman had been on that floor beside that tub for days. She sort of begins her introduction, you know, her kind of relationship with the audience from this place of like a kind of catatonic state. Mm. And over the course of the play, because of the kind of like angels of memory is how I saw it, these other women who kind of flutter into space and become a part of a journey of healing that begins at that moment on that stage in that imaginary space, she begins to actually um, piece together the stories until the, the, the sort of penultimate moment when she's able to finally say out loud the story of this kind of deep original trauma that she's mm -hmm. had, right? So that work was very much about how do you bring audiences into the intricacies of trauma and also the intricacies of injustice, right? How do you make people feel injustice in a visceral, palpable, embodied way in an audience? That was my first inquiry as an actor. And from there, I began to, you know, as I started to move into producing and really looking at other people's stories, how they were holding them, I began to think about the gap, really, between how most, a lot of people who are leaders in movements are trained to tell stories, which is actually not about reaching into embodied space. It's actually mm -hmm. about telling stories at a distance. It's about, you know, listing the facts of a mm -hmm. person's experience of injustice. Like, let me introduce you to this person. Her name is this. This is what's happened to her. This is why it's hard that that's happened to her, right? There's actually a structure for that story that many, many movement leaders are trained to use to tell the story. And so as an actor, I felt that my intervention was to actually bring uh, a different technology of storytelling into those relationships with movement leaders and help them to see the three-dimensionality 
of the story. And, um, and that very naturally moves you into relationship with, um, with, uh, with artists and, um, and particularly in the case of the movement leaders that I worked with, it was artists who also, who, when they make art or when they tell stories, um, not just, you know, 10 or 15 people listen, but millions of people listen because that was what these movement issues needed is millions of people listening to them. And that was the sort of evolution that led me into really looking at first story strategy. How do you actually Mm -hmm. tell a story that creates a kind of real moment of catharsis for the person who's engaging with that story. And by catharsis, I mean, um, my, my, one of my teachers in school defined catharsis as the moment when the blood and breath of the artist meets the blood and breath of the audience. That is that moment. And, mm-hmm. and how do you actually achieve catharsis in the context of movement storytelling? And then, so how do you scale the technique, the craft, the expertise of people within movements to achieve catharsis in their storytelling? And then how do you actually create the field of storytellers that have that goal and that skill set to be able to do that at scale? Wow. And there's so much to unpack there. I definitely want to acknowledge from a storytelling perspective, the fact that Black women have a long-standing tradition of some of the most predominant culture bearers in American society and storytellers. That's right. Black women just often play a large role in shaping our national conversation and shaping the stories in a way that's powerful and meaningful. And before I jump into some questions around narrative work, I would just love to get your thoughts on why do you think this demographic, um, speaking personally, I hope, has such a profound impact in shaping American culture and determining what we talk about. I think there are a number of reasons why. And I was actually very, very moved and really grateful for the writing that you did in the Stanford Social Innovation Review about BIPOC leadership, because some of those kind of ways of codifying the principles and the techniques of leadership, and we can speak specifically of Black women's leadership, just have been, I don't want to say intuitive, but they're they're just so like organically built into how we are making choices and navigating space and relationships that they can be invisibilized and seen as instinct and not as strategy and technique and expertise, right? There's the things that we can easily speak to, like um, what it looks like to be someone capable of making decisions and taking care of people that you care about and staying alive in a culture that doesn't actually want you to, the, the <laughs> skill involved in that and that is honed and that that is also passed down. I'm over here giggling nervously, but I mean, it couldn't be more true, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. They don't even yes. want us to be alive. And here we are. I mean, yes. Thriving, right? Right. <laughs> so that that is skill set, right? I often say that in order to survive, let's just talk about American culture, you also have to become an expert in this kind of culture, this this white supremacist culture, all of the norms and systems. You can't actually survive unless you has a, have obsessively studied how this world works. What are the rules? Who are the powers that be? What are the systems at work? What are the languages that, that many, the myriad of languages that people are speaking? So there's also just this long, since the, since kind of the day you're born, you are accumulating information about how this world works. And I think other mm-hmm. people are not. 
Like, mm. I think that some people come to an understanding of, of the inner workings of our society and culture at a later point in life because they aren't um, being harmed by it, right? They aren't, ha- it's not like the water that's seeping into their nostrils and their throat that is drowning you. So you, you didn't have to learn how to swim. That point is so amazing as well, because you take for granted the things that you do very naturally. Like I joke all the time, black people do the black count naturally entering a room without thinking about it. I can tell you how many people are, how many black people are in any room that I'm in. Without a doubt. (laughs) Yeah. And so the sense of self-awareness makes you have a very strong sense of what's happening around you. And I joke all the time, and I talked with an earlier conversation, this concept of my uncle used to always say, you can't beat white people at being white, but you can understand how white people operate better than they understand themselves. That is true. That is absolutely right. That is expertise and skill set that begins, uh, that we begin accumulating very, very early in life. So that's a like a, that's actually an advantage, right? That we've been studying longer than many people. But I also think that it is culturally, it is often left to black people and black women and girls and black children to hold Mm. space, whether it's on the playground or inside of families and certainly in communities. And so there's also skill involved in organizing people, in holding people. There is skill in taking care of Mm. people, whether it's elders or people who are, you know, siblings, for instance, who are younger than us, there are those kinds of things, whether it is altogether a positive thing to have those kinds of responsibilities hoisted upon us, we are actually acquiring all of these skills and talents through these behaviors and through the sort of norms of a lot of Black communities and Black-centered spaces. I also believe that there is just a kind of modeling that is powerful. Right. So there is actually just an undeniable legacy that we can point to of black leaders, particularly black women and gender expansive leaders who did it before. We are not starting from scratch. We are learning at a very young age. We are seeing it in our own closest relatives and friends and community members. But Mm -hmm. certainly we are modeling based on. Um, clear, unequivocal evidence that this kind of leadership exists. This is what it looks like. And we're constantly building on that. And I actually think that's been a huge training ground for me in my own sort of leadership path has been whether it's people I know or it's through kind of really digging into the writing and documenting of other people's leadership journey that I have learned bell hooks was a leader who taught me many, many things, particularly how to lead while navigating white-centered space, like in academia. Mm. Um, I was reading Bell Hooks when I was in college, and I was at a predominantly white institution, and I needed guidance and navigation tools in that space. Um, and those like Bell Hooks, were a part of kind of my sort of imaginary kitchen cabinet of people yes. who were helping to frame what the challenge was and how I could confront it. And I think, Bridget, it's worth calling out that, I mean, we talk about these people as imaginary cabinets. I do believe that there has been always within the Black community this generational expectation that those elders 
were meant to expire folks that would come long after they were gone. They were there for a reason, right? Yes. Uh, I think that we are lucky within the community, the Black community particularly, and I would argue with even within the queer Black community even more so, to have folks who knew that they were offering insights that actually wouldn't be relevant for generations to come. Yeah. Or they were offering guidance that may not necessarily be relevant at the time. I mean, Octavia Butler wasn't writing for herself. She was mm-hmm. writing for generations to come after, recognizing right. that they wouldn't come after. And I'm reminded of the beautiful Haitian quote, beyond the mountains, more mountains, which mm-hmm. sounds like a very dark <laughs> quote, very Haitian in that sense, right? But in my mind, it's the concept of like, you know, you, you actually get to the top of a mountain. And you're celebrating that there were mountains ahead. You can actually see mm-hmm. from that mountaintop the mountains that come. And that's success to be able mm-hmm. to see the mountains ahead as opposed to still being stuck on the mountain that you're climbing. And right. how many of uh, folks that came before were actually letting us know about the mountains ahead uh, as they got to the mountaintop within their time and their space as well. So I appreciate this calling out of those who came before because I think that modeling gave us not just models, but also an expectation mm-hmm. of what we're supposed to do, uh, mm-hmm. a blueprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, that we were supposed to live into that was really powerful and meaningful. I think that's true. We don't actually talk enough about the role that our connection to indigeneity plays in how we have articulated our identity as Black people and descendants of enslaved people on this land. You know, I'm a part of, a, I think, a lot of, of millions and millions of Black people who do not know where in on the African continent my people were originally kind of kidnapped and displaced from. But I do know the connection to African indigeneity through so many of the customs and traditions that are baked into my identity as the daughter of Black Southerners, the granddaughter, the the descendant of Black Southern ancestors. And there are principles of how we build relationships, how we build systems of care and mutual aid and abundance in terms of our ability to provide for ourselves and each other that are long and old and ancient. And we carry them forward in ways that seem very contemporary, very 21st century in terms of our our habits and norms, but they actually like, they are They're pulling rooted in something so old. From yeah. something so old. And the more and more that we name that connective tissue, we begin to sort of embrace that the systems of belonging and the systems of justice that we are actually like not trying to create, but actually like re celebrate, remember from the fragments, right? We become stronger and stronger in our clarity of how, you know, like how we actually get free, right? Like we, we are both imagining something that has never happened before, and we need to be hearing the strains of our memory that have actually sort of, you know, devised and laid a lot of ground already. And honoring the cultural anchors that have allowed us to thrive and survive uh, through however many years of enslavement and oppression, the beauty and those things that have actually been our navigating tools uh, that are central to our culture, although they often go unnamed, That's right. often unappreciated, and we don't, often don't know where they come from. But the similarities, the existence that are across the entire Black diaspora is really powerful and meaningful. Part of that naming process comes with the conversation I want to shift to now. You've developed a reputation as one of the most impactful leaders in culture change strategy. And I just want to give you some space to, I wouldn't say define, 
but explain what is narrative work? How does one change narratives? And I ask that because it's, I feel like it's one of those buzzwords now, right? Uh, within the last few years, like everybody, oh, I do narrative work and let's focus on narrative change. And I think it's great for folks to have an understanding of what that means. That question of what is narrative change and how do you do it? Of course, it's become even more of like, I don't even know if it's buzzing anymore. It is a big, loud <laughs> chorus at, at, <laughs> at this point, both in philanthropy and in social justice movements. And that's a good thing. It's taken a lot of people, including myself, a 100%. long time to get to the place where, you know, everybody's talking about It's a about cause for narrative. celebration, for sure. Yes. Yeah. And I think where we are now in the field is really beginning to say, okay, now that we've got your attention, let's get a lot more nuanced about what it is we're talking about. And one of the things that has been kind of a drumbeat for me right now is this idea that we have to stop, um, kind of have to like check ourselves in this kind of goal of, you know, changing the narrative about mm. something. And really begin to think about what it's going to take us to transform the narrative oceans that we are all swimming in. So the reality is that a narrative or the narrative isn't in isolation. Mm. That's not where the power lies, is in a narrative. Where the power lies in our culture around narrative is the fact that every day we are immersed in narrative oceans of many powerful narratives and ideas and norms that swirl around us like the way that water swirls around a fish in the ocean. And we're not always aware of them. And in fact, most of us are almost never aware of these narratives and mm -hmm. mental models or ideas that are kind of informing how we think about ourselves and other people, how we relate to people, how we make decisions about who belongs and who doesn't and who has value and who doesn't and whether or not we think that it's even possible to bridge our gaps, to bridge our differences, right? There are all of these ways that these that this ocean of narratives is creating reality for us and actually influencing how we behave and make choices in the world. So the work, I would argue, if I could change the name of the work, I would say we are in the transforming narrative oceans work. Listen, I'm all about a name change. <laughs> is there anything more American than renaming something and listening yes. to it? Yes. <laughs> Claim it. We we are in the transforming narrative oceans work. And that is actually, I believe, the great the next great work of social movements is to begin to think at that level of scale and breadth and then begin to draw down and say, how do you actually transform a narrative ocean? And when, you know, when we began thinking about this question, even at the pop culture collaborative. We began looking at culture change processes, all kinds of culture change processes that really did transform narrative oceans. We looked at the civil rights movement, which is kind of like I'm very steeped in that that history, as we mentioned. Um, we looked at marriage equality because a lot of people in movements and in philanthropy are paying attention to what happened in the marriage equality space. But we also looked in the realm of advertising. We looked at mm -hmm. like how is it that suddenly everybody drives SUVs instead of station wagons? Like how did it, how did that evolution happen? What was it culturally that made people think that that was the answer to all of our needs? Why was that normal? We looked at bottled water. How in the world 
did we all come to believe that the water that comes to us, for instance, in a plastic water bottle is more safe and healthy than the water that's actually... <laughs> For the folks at home as she holds up a plastic water bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, how did that happen? So we looked at all these things and what we discovered is that underneath in all of these different processes there are a couple of things. One is that there was some kind of organizing framework. There was a group of people who came together and they designed an organizing framework, what we call a narrative system, that they agreed to pursue together. There was a goal that was enlivened by this narrative system, and they agreed to work together to try to achieve that culture change goal through whatever this framework was. And then the second thing that happened is that, I will just repeat, they agreed to work together to get it done. What we've done is really dig in and pull from learnings that that began almost a decade ago. I started working with a movement leader named Ai Jen Poo at the National Domestic Workers Alliance over a decade ago. And it was in that collaboration with Ai Jen that we began to, to sort of think about uh, what we called at that time the surround sound of narrative, what has now evolved into this idea of the narrative ocean. And we began to think about the architecture of a framework that could hold hundreds, if not thousands of people in a network together in purpose. And that work has evolved over the last decade into a narrative systems design methodology that we believe actually is the way for networks of movement leaders and artists and researchers and cultural strategists, entertainment industry, pop culture industry people to come together and work with purpose to transform narrative oceans. That's the big idea that I think everybody needs to kind of like readjust in our brains around is that, that we're not going to win. We are not going to endurably shift our circumstances, our reality, what is norm in society, unless we take on that holistic approach to narrative ocean transformation, and that the way that we do that is through narrative systems design and activation. Hmm. And I want to also just unpack a little, as I think that, you know, as a generation, Gen Xers, we're the Sesame Street generation. Like we were the generation that literally we were plopped in front of Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. And we thought that was normal. We had no idea what radical worldviews were being normal, were being normalized as we watched these shows. And then our fam, depending on the family, the neighbor and the community, those views were normalized in school, in your community, in home, right? And so it speaks to both this ability to tell a story that's compelling and inclusive but also to build the systems that are echoing, if you will, some portions of that strategy and giving place to others in this work. And also speaks to, in many ways, the importance of pop culture in general as a vessel for shaping American perceptions of social change and, and normalizing what's best practice. I would love to just get some thoughts from you on how societal leaders and philanthropists particularly can better utilize culture to achieve social good. I think that, you know, if we speak specifically about philanthropy, um, what is really clear is that the approaches to social change or social justice movement building, whatever, however you define that work of, of mm -hmm. foundational transformation of society, um, in that context, uh, we now have decades of evidence 
that um, strategies that pursue that kind of change that do not acknowledge or better yet, deeply, deeply dig into the power and role of narrative and culture are um, both not successful and not sustainable. Right. We we often in social justice circles, we lean back and we say, how are we here again? How is Mm -hmm. it that in decades of work on immigration, for instance, we are here again where we do not have clear pathways to citizenship? We do not have strong infrastructure as a welcoming society in this country. And I would argue that the reason that we're here again is because primarily the strategies that we have used, our policy, litigation, um, to a certain extent organizing, but not necessarily organizing at scale. And we mm. haven't really attended in all the ways that we need to, to narrative and cultural work. And the reason that's significant is because no matter what systems you change, those changes are purely symbolic unless mm. the American populace believes in them and has been transformed in their behaviors, in their beliefs, in their uh, and how they relate and comprehend the world in alignment with those changes, right? So what we have is... Um, a political context that is in profound disalignment from Mm -hmm. our cultural and sort of personal identity context, right? And we have to solve for that really, really big chasm that is forming between those two things. I'm reminded of, and I quote him all the time because I think that it's a powerful piece, Donald Hollowell, the old civil rights attorney, used to always say there were two battles happening. One, there was the courtroom and policy battle. Um, and, but there was also the kitchen table battle, right? And we had, we couldn't win all the policy fights and we can't sustain the policy wins unless we've won the kitchen table battle. Uh, and I think that we are definitely at a point in our country's history. uh, We're always at a point in our country's history, but but there's definitely a fight for the American narrative, right? There's a fight for the kitchen table conversation of what's normal, what's American, what's acceptable. And unless we can, you know, sure up that fight, win that fight and own the narrative and really set the narrative, those policy wins will be unsustainable. That's right. And in fact, when we really dug in around the marriage equality strategy, a lot of people really think that it was pop culture just in kind of general. It was in pop culture reflection that the change happened. But what we found when we looked at dozens and dozens of pieces of content that emerged, we studied the trend lines and Gallup polls to understand the evolving public sentiment around marriage equality. And what we discovered was that there was this kind of very sharp um, increase in public support for marriage equality around 2009. So we sort of zeroed in and we began looking at the content that emerged through the Supreme Court cases. And what we found is that it wasn't that people were being exposed and in proximity to queer folk that was actually the turning point. It was actually a shift towards a narrative systems approach where people across a lot of different sectors agreed to really hone in on a few really key ideas and story archetypes in just about everything that was moving out into the world. But they also began to recognize that it wasn't about us 
It wasn't about the telling the stories of queer people. It was about telling the stories that would catalyze change in other people, in parents who were resistant to their children's identity, right? Like in people who didn't recognize queer identity as real or deeply, deeply rooted identity, right? There were all these people who had barriers in their emotional and cognitive kind of uh, makeup that they actually needed to speak to. And so when they began Mm. to more strategically tell the story, there are dozens of stories, for instance, that are all about mostly white, mostly boomer fathers grappling, coming awakened to their bigotry and recognizing that their bigotry is preventing them from staying in right relationship with their child. There Mm. are dozens of these stories. And that is because there are millions of boomer fathers and their spouses who were terrified, uncomfortable, angry, upset, um, uncertain about the lives that their children could live if they embraced their queer identity. And they needed storytelling that modeled how you get through How do you get Mm. through your fear and overcome your bigotry in order to express your love and to stay in loving relationship with your child? That was deep strategy. Those people. They needed a roadmap. Yes. They needed like a character roadmap that showed them and modeled how to get through and get to a more liberated relationship with their children. So when you Mm. think about leaders like Rashad Robinson, when he was at Mm -hmm. GLAAD and certainly has continued that tradition at, at Color of Change, that kind of really astute, keen story strategy is actually what made the difference. And it wasn't one story. It was dozens of stories all around people, that surround sound, that immersive ocean that I was speaking of, that actually made the difference. So in philanthropy, we have to actually um, take on the work of learning actually how does narrative transformation happen? How do we fund towards narrative transformation? How do we understand what narrative infrastructure is and how you create a grant-making program that builds out the narrative infrastructure that makes immersive narrative ocean building possible, right? We have to get busy, roll up our sleeves, study up, and beginning make more intentional, more structured and strategic grant-making decisions in the narrative space. Yes. I'll have to bring you on again so we can talk more about this narrative stuff. I find it fascinating. And for a number of different reasons, I think it just speaks to our strengths. And we're a country of of stories. We're a country of stories and people telling stories. And Black people are truly experts at telling powerful and masterful stories. I would love to close to some degree with a question that I ask folks all the time. I had a really good therapist many years ago who said that sometimes hope comes from experience. As we think about the times ahead, because we're living through some stuff now between four years of Trump, followed by COVID and all the things that we're living through, it's very often easy to lose sight of hope uh, and inspiration. But what things have you seen or lived through more recently uh, as experiences that bring you some hope about the times ahead? There's so many things, actually. I was really hopeful when I sat in the theater and gave over my imagination to Ryan Coogler during the last Wakanda Forever um, Black Panther film. 
hopeful not just because of the storytelling, but because of the surround sound within movements and the cultural strategy field and the cultural criticism field, the surround sound that really is enabling millions and millions of people, particularly Black people, to imagine forward and to feel a sense of genuine sort of Black euphoria for what is possible and what we are capable of. I was um, really grateful for the leadership that was expressed through that story world and the complexity of what uncolonized and decolonized and decolonizing leadership looks like. That was one of the things that gave me hope because it's actually a beacon, um, an indicator that of all the ways that the entertainment industry is becoming a place where Black leaders, where BIPOC leaders, where other historically excluded communities are not only finding seats at the table, but actually like building new tables and building those tables on the moon. My life's work is the, the table on the moon. And what do we need? What are, what's all the, the, the ladders and stairs and infrastructure that we need to be able to create our worlds in that kind of expansive place? So that makes me quite hopeful. Yes, I agree 100%. I think there's so much to be hopeful for. I think there's also something quite radical about the assertion that they're Black people in the future. We're running the future, child. It's just all about us. Yes. The leadership and vision of Black people, Indigenous people will shape the world for years to come. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for making time. You also bring me great hope. Folks like you at the helm when it comes to narrative work and changing our larger narrative, really, it brings me some degree of calm. We're in excellent hands and excited to be in community with you as we carry out this great work. Yes, you too. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Growing up, my grandma Lucinda's kitchen was my favorite place in the world. Like most American cities, 80s and 90s New Orleans was one steeped in chaos. White flight and the resulting economic precarity, the war on drugs and the AIDS epidemic all came together to create a two decades long hurricane that brought the city to its knees, long before Katrina came through in 2005 with a near fatal blow. But despite the chaos outside in the city, my grandma Lulu's kitchen offered comfort, warmth and solace and endless supply. It was the ultimate safe space. My grandma was a masterful dream interpreter and believe that sometimes the ancestors visit you in your dreams to comfort you and help you chart your path forward. And our morning breakfast routine included her offering her take on my nightly musings and translating those ancestral messages for me and the family. I've always had a very vivid dream world, and my grandma's interpretations were often more whimsical than the dreams themselves. There were stories and explanations for each of my musings. You came upon a river, huh? But how deep was the water? Was it clear or muddy? My dreams were Oscar-worthy productions, and my grandma was like a member of the Academy, curiously taking it all in. But did you fly, she'd ask. Many of my family were gifted with the ability to fly in dreams, and she'd look on with both approval and relief when I confirmed that, yes, I did fly. I was flying all over the place in my dreams. I learned some years later that I was her only grandson of 11 who inherited the gift of flight. But in what was a generational anomaly, all four granddaughters did too. The granddaughters and the one gay grandson, a generational shift that left them all both puzzled and pleased. The world was indeed changing. At some point at the start of the Trump years, the weight of the world made my dreams go black and white. We were living through dark times, and the dark real world cast an imposing shadow over my once vibrant dream world. But some months after my dream world lost all color, my grandma Lulu visited me in a dream. In the dream, she visited my home here in California, made a big pot of red beans to celebrate her visit, and to assure that I hadn't forgot my New Orleans home. The beans were delicious, of course, and we sat around the table for some dream hours, laughing and talking. And as I looked around, I noticed punctuations of pink and yellow and purple, and a few bursts of red and orange. And while the real world outside remained an imperfect mess, I was dreaming in color again. 
and some hope had managed to push through. But do you still fly, she asked as we finished our dinner and it was clear that the dream was coming to an end. Yes, I still fly in my dreams, I responded. Good, she said, looking more pleased than ever. Some years ago, at the Association of Black Foundation Executives Convening in Memphis, the ever-brilliant Latasha Brown closed out her remarks with, We're all on assignment. This time is calling us to be as courageous as possible. Black people must begin to trust each other's assignments. We're building safe houses on the way to liberation. My conversations with Bridget always remind me of both the beauty of the assignment and the beautiful minds who are engaged in this work with us, building a future more vibrant, more vivid than anything even my dream world could imagine, one where we all fly. Well, y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreamy and Color, a Bridgman supported Studio Pop Media production. Special shout outs to our wonderful show producers, Teresa Buchanan and Denise Savas. Our video editors, Dave Clark McCoy, Diana Radaelli, and Alejandro Ramirez. Our graphic designer, Diana Jimenez, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge shout out to our ever brilliant Bridgeband production team and family, Cora Daniels, Jasmine Relaford, Ami Diane, Christina Pistorius, and Ryan Winsel. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Talk soon.